Welcome back, listeners, to another episode of 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries. A short time ago, we received this inquiry. You've heard of the Pinkertons, right? Actually, the day I received this text, I was scheduled to interview Brad Meltzer about his new book, The Lincoln Conspiracy, a story that centered around Alan Pinkerton's efforts to save Lincoln from an assassination in Baltimore. So this opening question didn't fall upon my deaf ears. He continued, I'm a real descendant of the Pinkertons. My family founded the Pinkerton Detective Agency. My story has not been told to the masses just yet. From 2003 to 2017, I had a job to handle the network infrastructure for the FBI, DEA, U.S. Customs, IRS, U.S. Treasury in Hawaii, and the Pacific Rim, as well as many military facilities in the region. I've trained police and prosecutors on some of those systems. On a small Hawaiian island named Kauai, police corruption was rampant. A police officer I trained on systems I installed in the prosecutor's office enlisted my help to try and curb the police corruption that was ruining the morale of the department. Pick up the book KPD Blue, written by Anthony Summers, and it details the Sergeant Kapua and Darla Abitiello case. My associate Mark Begley is now the assistant chief of police. The chief of police affidavit from K.C. Lum in response to the federal suit I filed validates what I'm going to state next. After discussing putting in GPS tracking devices in police and county vehicles with the chief of police, the very bad element within the department lay wait for me. They knew if I installed GPS in their vehicles, their criminal activity would come to a screeching halt. And then the writer expanded on exactly what went down and asked us if we would like to interview him. Christopher Pinkerton, it's great to have you with us today. Thank you, John. It's a pleasure to be here, and I appreciate this time you're affording me. I'm hoping you can share a little bit of your background, including how you became connected with the state of Hawaii. Well, absolutely. So I'm actually from southeastern Oregon, and I met my wife when I was traveling through Southern California. She's from Hawaii. She's from the island of Kauai. And so I followed the love of my life to where she was from. And my first job there, I was a tour guide on horseback, which is far, it's a far different uh, field of work that I'm, I'm doing now and what I did for many years uh, in the IT field. And after having several kids, my wife encouraged me to get different training and so I became a Cisco certified network troubleshooting uh, communication issues for the Navy and interpreting blueprints, doing build outs for their uh, NMCI network, different infrastructure. I, I became a, a consultant for the Navy for a while and that led to doing other high, high tech jobs uh, where I was installing a lot of different systems for every dot acronym you can imagine in the Pacific Rim. And I appreciate those opportunities because it's kind of led where I'm at today. You know, I get to maintain power plants in southeastern Oregon. But those technical skills really, uh, they, they paved the way for everything that I was able to do. And I must give credit to my wife because she's been my biggest mentor. We've been together 31 years and we have five kids together. Fantastic. She's my first and only wife. 
<laughs> That's the way to do it. I have I have more I have more invested with my wife than I do my 401k. <laughs> Don't we all? How bad was police corruption? Well, the 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 crime in in uh, on the mainland is what caused my wife to want to leave. She she was tired of the carjackings and the shootings, and she didn't feel safe. And so when she expressed to me her desire to leave and move to Hawaii, I wasn't about to let the best thing that ever happened to me get away. So I followed her suitcase in hand. I didn't know when I'd be back. And police corruption in Hawaii, it's pretty notorious. There's there's only one island that has a federal building, and that's Oahu, and that's where our state capital is, and that's where the U.S. District Court is. But all the other outlying islands, you have very, very little to none federal oversight. And at the time, there is no GPS tracking or different monitoring devices on the vehicle. So it was it was well known that certain elements within the police departments on every island were corrupt. They would run drugs, guns, uh, extortion, prostitution, and give protection to the nefarious elements that they were undoubtedly related to. So nobody wanted to arrest their cousin, their third cousin, their friend, their classmate, their uncle, their auntie. And so it was just corruption breeds corruption. Mm-hmm. But it, at one point it got so bad that a friend of mine who's now retired told me that he, it was so bad he was going to quit his job because he didn't know who to trust. Wow. And this, this is a, regarding the Sergeant Kapua and Darla Abatiallo. Now, Darla, she's a, a fantastic officer. She's got great integrity. She's got a wonderful track record. She's been decorated and awarded uh, and recognized for her integrity and, and her police work. And she made an arrest, and the two individuals stated to her that they were free from arrest because they paid protection money to her boss, which was Sergeant Kapua. Well, she wasn't going to stand for that, and I knew it. I knew she to be a brave individual, and rightly so, because she went to her superiors and turned them in. She received a lot of death threats because of it. If you Google that online, you'll see that that case settled for, I think, $1.8 million before it went to trial. Wow. Would one Google it by her yeah, name, which was uh, spelled A-B-A-T-E-I-L-L-O? Darla Abatiello? I would put the other search terms in there. That, her name, K-A-P-U-A, Sergeant Kapua's okay. name. And lawsuit. And you'll find a, a whole plethora of articles and write-ups. So she turned him that's in, and was he prosecuted? No. No, that's, that's another thing. The corruption is, is so rampant that federal prosecutors don't prosecute the ones that need to be prosecuted. But... He was disgraced, and he, and he resigned, and I do believe he resigned and kept on his pension. Hmm. But most recently, his wife, in the past few years, was caught stealing drug money from that was earmarked from the DEA. Wow. So that's, in, that's a recent news article. That'll give you an insight at how bad it really is. Wow. Yeah. And that's what happens when you don't have any federal agencies within that area. So although the FBI does their investigations, 
the good police who could turn over state's evidence against the bad ones are afraid to do so because they're going to be fingered out as a whistleblower. And then what happened to Mark Begley will happen to them. Now, Mark Begley was beaten so severely, he received a traumatic brain injury. And he was on paid leave for the longest time. I'm getting a lot of background noise from near your cell phone, either papers flipping or something. It's raining on my roof. (laughs) (laughs) There's not much we can do about that, is there? (laughs) Now, who was Mark Begley? What, what, What did he do? Well, he in turn found some bad cops and turned them in to his superior. And then the bad ones retaliated against him and gave him the beating of his life. And was he a policeman? He was, he was and still is, and fantastic individual. Describe the story of when you were asked to install location devices on police and county vehicles. Who asked you to do that, and what would that have accomplished? So, so the individual that asked me that is now retired, and he was also the one that would turn over state's evidence against the ones that conspired against me. And he did so. He asked me to do something about it prior to the Kapua and Abatialo case, because corruption has been rampant for years. And him being aware of the federal systems I installed, he asked me to do something similar. And I, at first, I was very reluctant because I knew that I'd be targeted if I did so. Mm-hmm. So after much him and hawing and him pleading with me to do something, and I guess what finally caused me to do something was when he said that he was going to quit his job and forfeit his pension. And this individual was a very good policeman. He was, he had, he practiced discretion. He would give you a warning. He would help you with your situation. His, his first response wasn't to cite you, but was to listen. He was a, a good listener and a good problem solver. He was more like a therapy or a counselor therapist or a counselor rather than a cop. But when he expressed how bad it was, then I knew I, I needed to do something and it was my civic duty. And I thought, well, you know what? I'm a Pinkerton. If anybody can do it, I can do it. And maybe that was me calling down evil on myself because God does oppose the, oppose the hottie. So maybe I brought it down on myself by having that attitude. But nonetheless, I told him, okay, it, it, it's time. So I contacted a friend of mine who was a police commissioner, and I'll just name drop his name. He's a good guy. His name is Michael Ching. He's no longer a police commissioner. And I told him what was going on, and he told me to wait wait it out because there's a new chief that's going to be selected. Uh, the chief at the time when I was asked was Chief George Freitas, who had his own issues, and he was on his way out. So at the at the urging of my friend, the police commissioner, I waited till the new chief was selected. And when the new chief was hired, I waited for him to settle into his position. And then I met with him. And again, his name is K.C. Lum, K.C. Lum. And I believe he was a really good police officer. He was a good chief. He tried to address the issues that, that he could, this is, you know, being constrained by the political affiliations that pretty much run the department. He wasn't afraid to go against the grain. And the, dis- the discussion stemmed about, well, they stemmed from the, the corruption and what could I do and the technologies that I could em- employ and put in place 
to help curb this corruption. And once the element found out, oh boy, then my world turned upside down. What was the first time you knew that they had found out and how did they, and, and, and what did they do? Well, the first time was in October of 2005, I was charged with two counts of harassment and one count of impersonating a police officer. And it was strategically done so to revoke my security clearance. And what a shameful thing to charge somebody with. And I contested that. And when it came down to trial, I, I was the only one at the trial and the officer who made these allegations didn't show up. This, in, this officer would also claim that uh, on the second arrest, that I was intimidating him as a witness and terroristic threatening him when in fact he was doing that to me at a school function and he was caught by the principal. So being caught by the principal as I was walking to an event called Gingerbread Night, that was December 13, 2005, he accosted me, started swearing at me, shoving his finger into my chest, saying he did his investigation and when the principal saw that, he tried to say, oh, I was the one harassing him, which is entirely not, not the case. So my phone records show, go ahead. I'm just saying, I just, I can't tell you how many times we hear that uh, in the news and elsewhere, the people who have really done the dirty deeds, a lot of them seem to just turn things around and blame the same things they've done on the innocents. It's quite amazing how many times that's been happening in news and in life. Well, it's a police training situation. So when you hear an officer say, quit resisting, quit resisting, quit resisting, their intent is to cause the people around them to interpret that the individual that's being arrested was, in fact, resisting when they weren't resisting. Mm -hmm. So when witnesses are interviewed, by the time they turn their head on the second or third quit resisting, they see the officer place the suspect in custody. So it gives the it gives the general public the impression that this individual was in fact resisting when in fact they weren't. What's interesting about that second arrest is that I, I called and I tried to get uh, a Sergeant Carl Oliver, who was the gunnery sergeant. I called him on his personal phone and it was late and I told him what was going on and, and he replied, can't you take a joke? <laughs> and I thought, you know, I've done a lot of work for you and pro bono work, and this is not a joke. And and my, my phone logs show all the amounts of calls I made to try to get an honest officer to take my complaint. Well, this individual, his name is Officer Gilbert Assumption, is notorious for roughing people up and overcharging individuals. He would claim that he was a victim, and yet he turned in four hours of overtime for that evening to assist in my arrest. I've got the overtime report, and I've got the screen captures from the RMS system. That's the Art Records Management System. And when you look at the chronological order of events, when a system is called into the CAD system, it's made by a dispatcher and then approved by a, a sergeant or a lieutenant and then follow-up is made by the depth uh, the officers that are responding. 
And what these screen captures showed was, in fact, a conspiracy because it was all out of order. The time of events, the entries were, were made by people that shouldn't have been involved until after, after the fact. And they, re, they would reduce those two felonies to a, count, a case account of petty, a petty misdemeanor where there is no trial. So they came to my house on December 14th at 2.30 a.m., made threats to shoot my dogs if I didn't submit to a warrantless arrest. arrest. They took me to jail, charged me with the two felonies. And when I went to court, they had reduced the felonies to a petty misdemeanor in order to keep the audio recording of this event. It was recorded. I, I record just about everything. I got a dash cam rolling. I have security cameras rolling. So they knew it. They knew all this evidence because I gave it to my attorney, who happened to be representing Sergeant Kapua, <laughs> who never told me this. Oh. Yeah, what a tangled web. Ah, yeah, what a tangled web, which kind of tells you uh, how deep uh, all this stuff went. Did you ever think you'd be turned turned on by police officers? You know, I, I suspected I would be turned on by the corrupt ones, but I thought they would fear my job role and, and my family lineage. But it just went to show how brazen they can be when they run the show, when they can file the reports and the, the blue wall of silence and the code of silence that Band of Brotherhood really does stick together. But yeah. I never thought that, that I would be conspired against by cops. No. How I, 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 You know, being pragmatic, I, I knew it could have happened, but I didn't think that it would happen. Uh, we'll return to our show right after this message from our sponsor. And now, back to our show. What prompted the, the police beatings that you ended up getting, and how many did you get? <laughs> well, let's see. I got, I got one good beating after the third arrest. And, and what prompted that was my complaints to the police commission. And my own attorney interfered with the investigation. So it was referred to uh, Wood and Tate. That's an investigation company on Oahu. And I told the investigator when they called to interview me for these complaints that I had filed, and I was going to share the evidence with them, they, in turn, my attorney, William Harrison, otherwise known as Bill Harrison, told the Wood and Tate investigator that they're not allowed to interview me without his presence. And I told the investigator, I don't need my attorney there for this interview, to con for, for you to conduct this interview. And sadly... They finished their, they closed their investigation without ever interviewing me, without ever receiving any of the evidence, which I had also posted on my website. And they said, okay, we didn't find anything wrong. Well, I was expecting that after, after finding out that my own attorney was on their side, that he was being paid to, re, uh, to, to represent uh, one of the dirtiest cops that Kauai has ever had. And... The beating was on March 6, 2006, where I was extracted from my vehicle. I was in the passenger seat. And when you look at the CAD events, it was an anonymous call came in saying that, that my truck 
was crashed off the side of the road. And the pictures show my truck was parked. Now the officers extracted me, cuffed me, choked me out several times. I lost consciousness. I stopped breathing. They had to call the medics to revive me. And I was revived twice in one evening. And the third time that, that they, they just kept doing it and doing it. And they did it as a scare tactic so that I would take their plea offer. And their plea offer was tantamount to a letter of extortion. So they were, they were trying to get me scared enough to leave. Well, I'm pretty stubborn, pretty tenacious. All I did was dig my heels in harder and, and fought harder. And that's when I started posting all the evidence on, on a website. And I put a tracking system in there by StatCounter, StatCounter.com, and recorded the IP addresses. And I proved that the county prosecutors were in receipt of exculpatory evidence because they were reviewing every page, every page that I made, I put the stat counter on. And they, they knew that I had evidence, but yet their, their responsibility to divulge this information, they shirked that responsibility. Now, I want to emphasize, there was two prosecutors in these cases. In, in these cases against me. One of them would quit because he refused to prosecute an innocent individual, and he later became my ally. His name was Richard Minatoya. And sadly, Richard passed away in November of a heart attack. And he was, he moved to Maui from Kauai. In fact, I moved to Maui from Kauai, but I did so on my terms. We became allies. He expressed a lot of things to me that I, I suspected, but I really didn't know the depth of where their orders came from. But the other prosecutor, who needs a glass belly button to see where he's going because his head is inserted in his rectal cavity, his name is Mark Guyot. And to this day, he says he's, he was trying to protect my civil rights. And he, he refuses to accept what he did was wrong. Now, it's interesting because once I posted all that evidence on, on my website, and I could I shown all the times that they access these pages and these audio recordings and, and these court transcripts. And I even received a, a, a Supreme Court warning 5.1 for recording in the courthouse. And I recorded a mediation between Officer Gilbert Assumption and myself. And in that in his statement which is supposed to be confidential. I knew he was going to lie, because these guys always lie. But in it, he, he actually contradicts everything that he's writing in his report. And so when I publicized that, the prosecutor asked for me to be given the warning for not recording in the courthouse. How would he know if I was recording in the courthouse if he didn't, in fact, review the evidence? And then the stat counter shows how many times that they hit the pages, what times and dates, and it came from the county IP. I still remember it beginning with 66 dot whatever. And it was, it was amazing. I really, I really knew I had them, and I thought they would be amicable, because when, I, when they offered me a plea offer, 
it did two things. It angered me to the point where I sent that plea offer to law professors around the globe. I, I was not going to accept it. And then I went to the county clerk and said, you know what? I think I want to run for mayor. I'm going to clean this place up. <laughs> I, well, I got to tell you, with your keeping of statistics and your use of uh, technical age, you, uh, you would make the Pinkertons proud. And I, I think your reason to take a stand in the first place was well warranted. You made the right decision. Uh, you certainly did bring a lot of pain down upon yourself, but you ended up breaking up a pretty bad, a pretty corrupt police department. And it went higher than that, didn't it? Didn't it go up to the attorney general? Yeah, and that's what Minatoya told me. He, I asked him, well, he asked me, why did I walk away from my federal suit? And I said, well, I'll tell you after you tell me, why did you guys prosecute me or try to prosecute an innocent guy? He said that call came from the attorney general who happened to be a former police officer himself. <laughs> and I said, really? He said, yeah, because if, if your case would have gone public, it would have ruined tourism. People would have seen Kauai as a police state. And this economy is dependent on tourism. Yep. Yeah. Instead of book them, Dano, it would be harass them, Dano, right? Scare them. Get them off the island. And, and their plea offer was tantamount to a letter of extortion. Wow. And it caught the attention of James F. Alfini, who was the Dean Emeritus. He's retired now. But he was running South Texas School of Law. He was so intrigued by this that they were re accessing my website, website and all the YouTube videos that I was posting on my YouTube channel, and they were teaching future prosecutors what not to do, or future attorneys what not to do when they become prosecutors. Yeah, as long as they're not teaching them how to lie better. We, yeah, well. We hope. It's, it's hard to teach people how to lie better because it's, the truth is easier to remember. <laughs> yeah, you don't get tangled up in the truth. You keep going back to the same thing. No. Did you ever fear for your life or did your family fear for their life during all of this? Uh, after the third beating, yeah. They, uh, they beat me so severely, you know, losing consciousness and being resuscitated. That was pretty tragic. Uh, being brought to by Danny Williams. He's an EMT. I don't know where he's at these days. But I interviewed him afterwards, and he, he explains that he was suspicious from the get-go. They claimed, the police claimed I was drunk, and I asked him, was I drunk? And he goes, no, you were, you were lucid to me. And uh, he said he was suspicious that he was called back to the scene twice, and the third time I came to, and they canceled the call. Huh. And... What caused me to walk away from the federal suit was the amount of death threats I'd get on anonymous calls, and they'd drive past my house, spotlighting my house, chirping their sirens, mm -hmm. and what really did it was, the, it was a green dot and a red dot on my chest. I, we lived on a soccer park in the town of Koloa, and I'd be at the kitchen window, and I'd look down while I'm washing dishes, and there's this dot traveling up my chest uh, mm -hmm. and so I, I just knew you know what I, I realized sometimes the things that you're entitled to can be detrimental for you I realized that I should be content with winning my freedom I've already proved to them that this dog has teeth uh, I've already proved to them 
that they're, they're barking up the wrong tree. And I didn't want any more retaliation. And I didn't want my family hurt. And so I decided money comes and money goes. This is, this is, this, this is a tough decision for me to walk away from the federal suit because it, it was money. It was money in the hand. But doing so put my family at risk. It, uh, it didn't put me in a good place mentally because to maintain that tenacity, I had to put Tom Petty and Johnny Cash's song, Stand My Ground and I Won't Back Down. I had to put that on repeat. Yep. And uh, it gave me PTSD, and, and, and it took a toll on my friends because it's, that's all I would talk about was say this, say that. And, and essentially, I just I knew I had to walk away and let it go. And pursuing the federal suit meant that I'd get more harassment. One call in particular said, you'll never spend that money. You'll be dead and buried in the cane field or fed to the pigs or in the, in the ocean. So go for it if you want, but that's what's going to happen to you, Pinkerton. Hmm. So I decided, you know what? Maybe they're right. This isn't worth it. And what was I your... walked away. But, but I, you know, the federal suit was interesting. I made a lot of mistakes. And had I, had I consulted with an attorney who wanted justice and not the money, because I, I had a lot of attorneys wanting to take the case, and they wanted sponsorship, so I got them sponsorship. But they wanted a huge cut, and I, I wasn't concerned about the cut. I was concerned about justice. I wanted... I wanted amicable solutions. I wanted them to get uh, retrained, all the officers retrained. I wanted the key ones to be punished. I wanted to, them to lose their rank. I was even willing to let them keep their pensions. And I guess I was too nice, and they thought, well, hey, this guy's a pushover. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, I, I'm, I'm disillusioned. I still feel that restorative justice exists, but only with older prosecutors and... And, and the older ones, the ones that are seasoned veterans in the law. Um, yeah, it seems it seems yeah. that once you get to a certain level of law enforcement, I don't care if it's your if it's your county police or if it's the DOJ or the FBI, that you uh, you reach a point where you just cannot be punished for crime. Am I am I safe in saying that? I think I am. I'm trying. Oh yeah, well I could point to numerous ones on Kauai. Uh, Sergeant Herbal Kapua never got punished. They they settled his case out of court, and nothing happened to him. They didn't they didn't take away his gold badge. They didn't make him give up his pension. Other individuals that were caught stealing drugs from the evidence locker were reassigned to the Department of Land and Natural Resources. <laughs> Circle the wagons. Yeah. Yeah. Well, people in Hawaii know what individual I'm talking about. <laughs> and his father used to run the drug syndicate, fishing boats. Ah. Now you got his son watching the shores, bringing the drugs ashore on his watch. Yeah, it's pretty twisted. All in the family. Twisted. We'll return to our show right after this message from our sponsor. And now, back to our show. Yes, you, you, learned, you learned to file and respond to motions. So you basically became an attorney in this process. Would you agree? Absolutely. And, and having proper courtroom decorum, uh, I value that experience more than the money it would have afforded me because it gave me an insight to the judiciary and what jurisprudence is all about. And I've seen good prosecutors 
work with individuals that are charged with crimes, and I've seen horrible prosecutors use it as an opportunity to put a notch on their conviction belt. I've seen good judges give colloquies that are amazing, and then I've seen judges give colloquies that are, that are threats, that, that they're not even helping the individual see the, the severity of the crimes that they're being charged with. And I think a couple of times the colloquies that I heard were as a result of me being in attendance. So I, I've seen some good judges and so I've seen some bad judges. But the, the experience that this afforded me, yeah, it's, it's amazing. It's, I would like to go to school and, and get a law degree. I wouldn't mind. But I wouldn't, I wouldn't be a defense attorney. And if I ever did become a defense attorney, and if the individual was guilty, that, that would be the plea. We'll, we'll, we'll plead guilty. We'll ask for a deferral to get it expunged. We'll, we'll mitigate the, the causes so that these don't happen again. And, you know, we can't shirk from their responsibility. It's either yes or no. The law is black and white. It's painted different colors by defense attorneys to get their clients off the hook. They're being paid to lie for them. And I have a problem with that. You wrote me, long story short, I won all the charges. Seven felonies, 11 misdemeanors. I got it all expunged. The details were so amazing, it caught the attention of a famous journalist. The document hosted on my Google Drive is what caught the attention of law professors and Walter Cronkite. I was interviewed by Cronkite two times during this ordeal. We had a third interview scheduled after I won, but he passed away before that happened. Was Cronkite able to get you any national attention? No, and he, he didn't want to do so until the cases were properly adjudicated yeah. and the cases were dismissed with prejudice. And he wasn't going to give me any glory if I was guilty of these charges. So the, the first interview was over the phone. The second interview was in person. And I guess the way I was talking, Mr. Cronkite thought I was a liberal. And, and you know, I'm, I'm more of a smartass than a liberal, but I did tell him, you know, Walt, maybe I am a liberal because I'll shoot off my mouth like I shoot my guns liberally. And he, he gave a deep chuckle and he slapped his knee. But if I had to, if I have to be in a, a political affiliation, choose one side, I really don't know, man. I really don't know because I'm, hu I'm human. I think there's good Republicans and good Democrats and good Green Party and good, lib you know, good liberals, but they all have different ideas, and you, and you get them all in the in the in a room, and none of them can, can agree with each other. The, some Republicans can't agree with other Republicans, and Dems can't agree with all the Dems. It all, you know, Johnny Cash wrote that song. It talks about. Just play the music, you know. Don't talk about politics. The guy on the left, the guy on the right, the, the guy who burned his driver's license. We don't want to hear all this rhetoric. Just, just show up, play the song, and, and let's get along. But Walter Cronkite was an interesting, interesting fellow. I never realized how tall he was. And when he sat back in that Adriatic chair, and, and his knees were up way past mine. I was like, wow, this guy never seemed so tall on TV. 
<laughs> sadly, he passed away before I got my cases adjudicated. And had he done so, if it, had he had that come to fruition, I, it, my book probably would have been published a long time ago. And who knows where this would have been? I probably would be teaching law somewhere in some law college. Well, I think you've got a tremendous story, and I think your book would do extremely well. And I hope you decide. I hope you decide to put it together. I really do. I think you've got a good story that can inspire other people. There was an individual that worked for the Daily Court Review. His name was Thompson or Tompkins. And he wrote an article, Defendant Says He Won't Go. And that caught the attention of a few individuals, and they were writing the blog on it. I'd like to get a copy of that. It's somewhere in in the archives. It was before everything got digitized. South Daily Court Review out of Houston. Hmm. article entitled Defendant Says He Won't Go. And I wouldn't go. I'm not going to go on their terms. I'll go on my terms. I'll go with my boots on. Your message is, as you wrote to me, tenacity. Stand your ground and don't back down. What advice can you give to people trying to uncover corruption in high places, like the FBI and the DOJ, for instance? Well, be ready for retaliation, number one. Make sure that you have more than one camera and one audio recording going, number two. Be prepared for uh, have it being discredited and being labeled crazy. Uh, and if they could ever get you convicted or thrown into a psychiatric hospital just to avoid your civil claims, be ready for that. That's something that the prosecutors tried in my case, and it backfired on them. And I was a firm believer, if you give somebody enough rope, they'll hang themselves. Only if they're guilty, of course. You give somebody that's honorable a lot of rope, they'll do something honorable with that rope. But guilty people will always hang themselves with the rope you give them. But my advice to individuals that want to do this or have to do it because their back's against the wall, you're going to have to invest in some technological toys and tools to help help you. And it's not going to be easy. And the, the thought of an, in the easy way out, uh, nobody wants to go to prison, especially the weak, especially the innocent. And suicide is, is not to be considered. Don't even think about that. If you, if you haven't made peace with your God, you should do so. And ask for help from a higher power. And just dig in. And... Be, be resourceful, but also don't point your finger at all officers, cops, and prosecutors as being bad, because I could tell you, if it wasn't for the good, honest cops, in my case, I wouldn't have been helped, and it was the good cops that turned over state's evidence against the bad ones. So there are good ones out there, and the majority of, of all police officers are good. It just takes one or two bad apples, and maybe maybe a, a police force of 100 police, policemen have maybe four or five known bad cops. But we shouldn't judge them all based on the actions of a few. I think it's unfair, and if, you, if you're respectful to them and truthful to the good ones, they just might help you get the evidence you need against the bad ones, which has happened in my case. That's fantastic advice. Christopher, it's been a real pleasure speaking with you today and hearing your story. And we'll do everything we can on this end 
to see that you get hooked up with a publisher. I think this story deserves one. And I think you've got a lot to tell beyond what you've told me. But you've been very, very factual and very forthcoming. And I know there's a lot of people, especially in Hawaii, probably there's a lot of people that would like to kill you, but there's probably a lot more people that would like to shake your hand and probably already have in one way or another. Would I be right in saying that? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I've, I was approached by one of the judges that told me that uh, they'd never seen anything like this before, that uh, they were impressed with how I handled the cases. When do judges go walk up to an individual in Costco and tell them that? Unheard of. Tell me a little bit about your family and your life there in Oregon. Well, I've, I've got my mentor still. My wife is, is my mentor. I mentioned that earlier. We've got 31 years together. Uh, our son is here with us. My brother's close by. He's a, he's a fighting Pinkerton as well. He's uh, pretty tenacious. He runs a tow company. Well, heck, he just got stabbed the other night, and then he took down the guy that did it. But it's a dangerous job running a tow company. I've got my nephews close by, my sister's close by, and we live in an amazing area, an amazing part of uh, Klamath County, and it's, it's absolutely gorgeous. And this is where my grandparents raised me and my brother. And my grandfather taught us the fundamentals of working hard and working smart. And I think that gave me an edge over a lot of the other individuals my age. I really attribute everything I do to, to what he taught me. And he was a World War II veteran. He was a decorated war hero. Uh, he never divulged that, but I found some of this. I found this out when we were remodeling the, the place I was raised. And I had no idea the extent of his, you know, heroic effort. Yeah, a lot of those guys were like that. They didn't talk much about it. Right. How are you related to Alan Pinkerton? So he's a great, great, great grandfather. And the last Robert Allen Pinkerton died two years ago. And that was my uncle. He died up in Washington. Well, I'm, I'm yeah, sure. Robert I Allen. Well, I'm sure with your dad and your grandpa and everybody along that line that they've all been trying to live up to the reputation for courage that Robert Allen Pinkerton had. And you certainly you certainly have yourself. So congratulations to you. And thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us today. Oh, you bet. It was a pleasure. I want to emphasize that that we need to do props to cops. And that's a policy I live by to this day. Uh, despite getting beaten and I actually survived a temporal aneurysm when they slammed my head in the jail cell door, I still honor and respect law enforcement. However, <laughs> if they're corrupt, then if I'm made aware of it and I have an interaction with them, I put them on notice. So that part of me is not going to go away. That part of me is not going to retire. That part of me is still fueled by the tenacity from the Pinkerton bloodline. And I do want others to, to take a moment and consider the ratio of good cops versus bad cops. Because as you've heard that saying, one rotten apple will spoil the barrel. That's not entirely true. There are still a lot of good officers out there that want to sleep at night, they want to have a good conscience, and that are doing the right thing. I know several here that are Oregon State Police that I'd love to give a shout out to. They know who they are. I know a few of the sheriffs in Klamath County that are wonderful 
impeccable and just honest, and they, they maintain a high level of integrity, and I respect them, and, and I, I'm thankful that they've maintained that integrity after being in this dirty system for so long. So the, the ratio of bad to good is it's not as bad as you think. There's a lot more good ones than bad ones. That's inspiring. If you were going to title the book, what would you title it? Well, I would title it Pinkerton Tenacity. Stand your ground and don't back down. Sounds good. Well, thank you so much. It was great having you with us today. We appreciate it very much. Thank you. Well, thank you, John. It was a pleasure, and I appreciate the time you afforded me. You bet.